1: If you head west out of Lagos, the sprawling and fast-paced Nigerian capital, past the reeds and palm trees that line the coast, you find yourself in the port of Badagri. Today, it's a grassy market town where people mostly farm and fish, with a huge new port development in the works. But for hundreds of years, it was also where a trade in enslaved men, women and children would take place.
2: During the days of slavery, this is the compound they used to keep the slaves. There are 40 rooms in this compound.
1: You're hearing the sounds of a tour of a former slave compound, or barracoon as it was known.
2: And in each of the rooms, 40 slaves are kept in each of the rooms. Minimum of 1,600 slaves are kept in this compound for three months. Now, here we are, the Shaku. This is called the Shaku, A-N-K-L-E. Then we this on the ankle of two sleeves. Then we pull the first shackle. At this. Bring your leg. Bring your leg. Bring your leg. Then we pull the first shackle on the ankle of the first sleeve, the second shackle on the ankle of the second sleeve. Then we pull the first one and the second one on the ankle of the second sleeve, and then we lock it together with padlock. Now imagine if there should be something like this around someone's ankle for good 18 hours, Definitely, there will be a lot of wounds around the ankle. They will now move the slaves out from this compound across the slave port, down to a place called point of no return.
1: As the tour guide Shakur has just said, this is a place where people were kept, sometimes for months, before being marched onto ships and taken across the Atlantic Ocean.
2: When this compound was established in 1842, Majority of the slaves taken out from this compound were taken to Brazil.
1: The abduction and trade in enslaved African people was, at its heart, a cruel but lucrative venture for the Europeans. The Portuguese
0: had an initial control and then the Dutch took over and then the English became dominant. But they were all involved.
1: This is Professor Toyin Falola. He's been a historian for more than 40 years and has studied the impact of the Atlantic slave trade on West Africa.
0: supply side
1: is Africa. They're the ones supplying the slaves. Despite the likes of Britain, the Dutch, Portugal, and other Western states playing a central role in the transatlantic slave trade, Professor Falola remains baffled by the European narrative alleging significant numbers of Africans were themselves culpable for the enslavement of African people.
0: Those who monopolize violence were the one benefiting from the trade so we have to unpack this and look at the data itself it is a small class of merchants and of kings and chiefs who are the monopoly of violence who could engage in trade so if somebody comes to me and say your people sold me into slavery I say my father was a farmer <laughs> Couldn't have sold you.
1: This myth that African people as a kind of group were involved in a widespread system of selling one another has persisted to this day.
0: Remember, political dominance creates narratives because it needs that narrative to stay in power. And it's usually narratives of division.
1: A short boat ride away from Badagri is an island called Gberafu, or the Point of No Return. There lies the last bit of land many African people would ever have felt beneath their feet. A long, torturous journey lay ahead.
2: You are welcome. Ah, Finally, the place we are is called the Slave Point of No Return. And the reason why this place is called point of no return is because once the slaves get to this particular area, they will never go back to where they are coming from. Then, there will be a big slave ship waiting for the slave on the sea. Why a little boat will be here that will be taking the slave down to the slave ship? Because the ship can near the shore. Once the slave gets here, the European slave merchants will use their bucket to fetch the seawater out, splash it on their body for them to clean up their body, before moving them into the slave ship. why in the slave ship, they have the upper deck and the lower deck. Their masters will the one at the upper deck, Why the slaves bid one at the lower deck. And they have to face this one for over three months. According to history, it may be 1,600 slaves, or more than that, that were taken out from the barracon across the slave port down here. But before getting to their final destination, it will only be about four hundred slaves or five hundred slaves that we finally made the journey. The rest of them will have died while on their way to their various destinations. And may Almighty God, in His infinite mercy, one minute silent for them. May their soul rest in perfect peace.
1: For those who did survive, many would find themselves on plantations in the United States or the Caribbean. But even more likely, they would be trafficked to Brazil. More enslaved African people were taken here than any other country. Brazil is also another place where we found a link between The Guardian's founding editor, John Edward Taylor, some of his financial backers, and transatlantic slavery, which has taken us there too. Today, over half of Brazil's population identify as black, and there are more black people in Brazil than any other country except Nigeria. It's a country still grappling with deep structural racism. What lies behind that is enslavement, and yet many feel that that history is not well known. From The Guardian, I'm Maya Wolf-Robinson. You're listening to Cotton Capital, Episode 4, The Brazilian Connection.
3: I'm a a light-skinned black man. So in Brazil, people like me, especially, we are taught, like not officially, but we are taught by the environment that we are white.
1: Tiago Rogero is a Brazilian journalist. He's based in Rio de Janeiro, which is on Brazil's Atlantic coastline. Renowned as a playground for the rich and famous, for many of its 13 million residents, life is blighted by extreme poverty. But there's another factor that also divides this city. Racial inequality.
3: We are created to think that we are white, to act like we are white. But then you start to see that you are not quite white because you are not treated as the white.
1: After facing a number of racist experiences, Thiago began to look into what was happening to him and why.
3: I started to realize that things that were happening to me, they used to happen for a reason. And then I started to search for knowledge on these racial matters and also our our history. And that changed me completely.
1: He realized that the story of Brazil that he'd been taught at school, at university, and in the media was an incomplete one.
3: This all-white history, this all-male history, this all-European history, it don't explain Brazil. Because it's missing a lot, so you cannot explain a country that has so many problems and also that have so many good things that comes from our African heritage. And you can see that and you can listen to that in our language. Our Portuguese is so different from the Portuguese of Portugal, and many of that could be explained by our African influences. Most of the people in Brazil, they don't know the Afro-centered look of our history.
1: For the past few years, Thiago has been producing highly acclaimed podcasts. Most recently, that has included a series called Projeto Carinho or Carinho Project. It looks at Brazil's history through the prism of slavery and is named after a 19th-century Afro-Brazilian intellectual and abolitionist. Part of the series is examining the whitewashing of moments in Brazilian history.
3: For example, the mining process of extracting gold. There's a German guy who who had slaves and worked in Brazil. He is known today as like the father of this industry. We have colleges that have the name of this guy, but we don't know the name of the Africans who were forced to work for him. It's known that they introduced him to this innovation, but we don't know the name of the people who did that. Those people are forgot in history. So it's just trying to, to bring this... Uh, knowledge to our population, and it's a knowledge that has been already produced by our academics, our intellectuals, over the years, but they don't get to shine as much as they could. Projeto Quirino is about that, it's about production of knowledge that was kept from us over the years and over the decades.
1: According to Thiago, you cannot understand Brazil unless you understand its history of slavery.
3: Slavery is the base of everything in Brazil. Like Our country only exists because of slavery.
1: In the mid-16th century, Portugal was a colonial powerhouse. In order to further increase profits from its newest colony in Brazil, the Portuguese Empire turned to Western and Central Africa.
3: Our country was the country that received the highest number of enslaved people in the world. From the 12 million or so African people that were took from their homes in Africa, 5.5 million had Brazil as their destination, 12 times more than the United States.
1: Only 4.8 million survived the journey and landed in Brazil, where slavery was embedded at all levels of society.
3: We always think in this figure of the big enslaver, the big mean enslaver, this lord of lands that has uh, hundreds of enslaved people. But the reality in Brazil was we had a lot of people like that, but also slavery was so intertwined with the lives of people that like someone could have only one enslaved, or two, or three, and mostly people that were not considered rich, they had sleeves as well.
1: John Edward Taylor was the founder of the Manchester Guardian back in 1821. Academic research now links Taylor's wealth and that of some of his funders with enslavement in Brazil. Taking us to the city of Salvador in Bahia. It's on the country's northeast coast and is the centre of Afro-Brazilian culture. After Rio de Janeiro, Salvador was Brazil's most important port for the trade in enslaved people. After the long journey from ports like Badagri in west or central Africa, many of the enslaved would have eventually landed here. It was the first capital that Portugal established in its new colony. And in the old town, it's possible to see the buildings that would have greeted people as they arrived. Much of the Baroque architecture has stayed the same, with hilly cobbled streets, brightly coloured houses and decadent stone carvings.
4: So when the ships arrived, they stopped here, and most of the enslaved people were to be sold for farmers and landowners from different regions that came here only on this purpose.
1: This is Antonio Pita a journalist and tour guide.
4: This is a a very heavy place. Uh, There is a heavy energy here because we can imagine how they suffered when arriving here. But it's important that we see it so we don't forget what happened and so we can understand why the city is the way it is today. I mean, we can see uh, here on this touristic place We can see some people using drugs, we can see some poor people around, and the majority of those people are black people that didn't have enough support, didn't have education, didn't have jobs, didn't have health assistance, so they didn't have anything even after the abolition. And even today, they don't have many things.
1: For Antonio, the long struggle of black people in Brazil against the oppression of slavery And the repression of the state in the years since is a lot to take in.
4: So it's a beautiful place, but its history is very impressive and oppressive at the same time.
1: The enslaved would be taken to work on plantations, producing sugar, coffee and, of course, cotton which is what Manchester Guardian editor John Edward Taylor and his associates were interested in. By the 19th century, when enslavement in Brazil was at its peak, there was one country playing a major role. Britain. For much of this period, they were Brazil's biggest trading partner. In Salvador, high up on a hill overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, is a white-walled cemetery, Here's Antonio again.
4: So we are in the British Cemetery and in 19th century when it was built. It was a very distant place from the city centre, but it's in the same street where most of the English people used to live at that time.
1: It's in a quiet neighbourhood of wide streets, tall draping trees and a handful of big Victorian houses that once belonged to British merchants. When you walk through the cemetery, the gravestones give glimpses of the threads that once tied this city to Britain and its common capital, Manchester. One gravestone was inscribed Charles Henry Mason, eldest son of F.W. Mason of Manchester, England. Died 7th of January 1877 of yellow fever. These men,
5: because they were men, arrived uh, in Brazil as young men seeking their fortune, often in family firms. So a brother might stay in Liverpool and a brother might then go to any port in Brazil, and that's where the connection between Brazil and the UK would be.
1: Dr. Joe Mulhern is an honorary fellow at the History Department of the University of Durham. He specialises in the role of British merchants in Brazil in the 19th century.
5: They were the main suppliers of goods that were traded on the coast of Africa for enslaved people. The British were able to supply what are known at the time as as coast goods, so textiles, armaments, British manufactures. Britain produces these goods at a cheaper rate than anywhere else in Europe or in North America.
1: The thing that is kind of crazy is that by the mid-1800s, Britain wasn't, in theory, involved in enslavement anymore. We've talked about the various acts in previous episodes. Abolition of the slave trade in 1807, abolition of slavery in 1833. They were even sending warships out into the Atlantic to stop traffickers. But despite all of this, Britain was making lots of money off the back of Brazil's slave economy. Merchants were supplying slaving voyages and trading in goods produced by enslaved people. So
5: there's that sort of cyclical element, that cotton produced in Brazil goes to Britain where it's manufactured, becomes these coast good textiles which are used on the coast of Africa to bring more enslaved people to Brazil who are working these cotton plantations.
1: The British were not hands off when it came to enslavement in Brazil.
5: They are slave owners, in many cases in their private households. Some of them have country estates. That was quite common um, for affluent British merchants to have country estates where they owned a number of enslaved people. British merchant houses in in most of Brazil's port cities, a high number of them were dependent
1: on slave labour. It's commercial offices like that that connect the Guardian to Brazil. In the early years of the Manchester Guardian, Britain was importing around 15% of its cotton from Brazil. Founding editor John Edward Taylor was one of the merchants buying this cotton through his firm, Shuttleworth Taylor & Company. This was cotton that was likely picked by enslaved African people in Bahia and Pernambuco. That's not all. Two of Taylor's funders were also involved. George William Wood, the one that went on to become an MP, And Robert Phillips, cousin of that other funder, Sir George Phillips, the co-owner of Success Plantation in Jamaica, that we explored in episode two. Cassie discovered that Phillips and Wood, who had a branch of Phillips Wood and Company in Rio de Janeiro, were importing raw cotton from Brazil. We think they were using that cotton to make textiles and then sending some of those textiles back to Brazil. What's completely mind-blowing that some of that cloth may have been worn by the enslaved people who had picked the cotton in the first place. There is much we still don't know, but academic research is ongoing into the Guardian's links to Brazil and the enslavement of African people.
3: Slavery was only abolished in Brazil in 1888. Here's Thiago again. When abolished finally came, that only came through the fight, the struggle of black people and also some white abolitionists in Brazil, but mostly black people fighting, not only institutionally, but also in the Quilombos. People were f- escaping from plantations and forming Quilombos.
1: Brazil was the last Western country to abolish slavery and as was the case with so many formerly enslaved people in other parts of the world, those in Brazil found themselves discarded with no form of compensation, while many enslavers had effectively been paid off.
3: So black people were still enslaved. They were left to their own luck because the Brazilian state did not want them. All of the wealth that were produced in Brazil is kept by the the descendants of those enslavers.
1: The power dynamics that slavery had established remained largely intact, something that continues to shape the lives of black Brazilians today.
3: For some people outside of Brazil, there's a belief that we don't have racism, that we are some kind of uh, racial democracy. Like, this is the most well-told lie of all. Most of the people in Brazil, they believe that we don't fight against each other because people only think about the segregation laws in the US and also the apartheid in South Africa. But here in Brazil, it's a very racist country. We can see that in all this data, this social economics data.
1: As Thiago said earlier, Brazil is a majority black society, around 56%. But there is deep racial inequality throughout the country. And the data that illustrates that is striking. Three quarters of the poorest segment of Brazilian society are black. In 2021, almost 80% of all people killed by the police were black. And Brazil has the third largest prison population in the world. And two thirds of those people incarcerated are black. You can see this inequality everywhere. Health, education, the workplace.
3: And also you can look at the regular salary the bottom is the black woman and then the black man and then the white woman and over the top right above the hill is the white
1: man. For Thiago, one legacy of slavery that particularly impacts black women is the culture surrounding domestic workers.
3: In Brazil, it's very common, very, very common that middle-class people, even lower middle-class people, have in their houses someone to work for that house Every day to clean and to cook and to help children with their lessons. It's mostly black women, and they are not well paid for that, doing hours that reminds that reminds slavery. And we had in Brazil a law uh, only a few years ago in two thousand fifteen that finally gave those women uh, some rights, some. Uh, work rights. But the the reality is that some of these people in Brazil, they treat their workers as if they still were enslaved.
1: Another legacy Thiago is interested in is religious persecution. Today, Brazil is the world's largest Catholic country,
3: at the beginning, the Catholic Church was the big partner of Portugal, and the slavery and everything, like, it was business.
1: In Brazil, the Catholic Church enslaved large numbers of people to build convents and monasteries, to grow food for the clergy, and to grow cash crops like sugarcane, to keep the church well-funded. It has been called the largest corporate enslaver in the Americas. What's more, The baptizing of enslaved African people, as well as indigenous people, also came with the impression of their existing religious and spiritual beliefs.
3: Every other manifestation of religion, especially the African ones, the Afro-inspired ones, they were persecuted. And the persecution, even after slavery, continued. But we also have a big problem now in Brazil that, like, even after all those years and even after the constitution of 1988, that allowed that all religions should be respected and that we cannot have someone being persecuted by their religion in Brazil. Even after that, here in Brazil, people of Afro-Brazilian religions, they cannot manifest their faith publicly, like... By the law they can, but the reality is that they are being persecuted this day as well. The Afro-centred religions that are treated as if they were manifestations of the devil and things like that.
1: Nowadays, the growing evangelical movement is the main oppressor of Afro-Brazilian religions. While followers of Afro-Brazilian religions such as Candomblé number a tiny percentage of all the population, in 2019 they were the target of a third of all cases of reported religious abuse. Recent years have seen a spike in attacks with places of worship being set on fire and practitioners being assaulted and even murdered on the street.
0: My name is Ianeuza.
4: I am Ia Nilza. This house has a very uh, strong importance because it's the first house of candomblé in Brazil. It has a very strong importance to the society.
1: Ia Nioza is a candomblé priestess in Casabranca, a tehero or house of worship for candomblé. This is a faith that enslaved people developed in Brazil, from the religions that they had brought with them from Africa, Antonio is translating for her.
4: Because we are here uh, trying to preserve the culture and the religions that uh, our ancestors came and brought to Brazil, and that's what we do here every day.
0: Once
1: you walk through the garden and up the steep steps into the Tejero, you are greeted by a stunning interior. The space is white with an elegant wooden shrine in the centre. Intricate white paper decorations hang down from every part of the ceiling. For many, Candomblé provides an important source of community support and strength. But Ia Nyerza says it is not easy maintaining the Candomblé's faith.
4: We still suffer, we, we are still persecuted, we are still under oppression. What I see is that some of us still feel ashamed of saying that they are from Candomblé. And uh, I believe that there is only one God for all the humankind, uh, like Buddha, like Allah, and we give the name of Obat and we celebrate him. And uh, we don't celebrate uh, devils as people say. There isn't Aquele a devil in our
0: embaixo. culture Tem um nós.
4: and there is o a boat barco, on navio, the entrance of e the e terreiro. It's a small reproduction of the, the ships that came from Africa and that brought our ancestors from here and it's in the entrance of the house so we never forget what happened. The words that the song says are like uh, the mother has come. The mother has come to us.
1: Finally, there was one other legacy I wanted to ask Thiago about. Something called branquiamento. A social practice of racial whitening of the population. This wasn't just something being carried out covertly. In the early 20th century, this became actual Brazilian state policy, announced at a Congress on Race held in London in 1911.
3: The representative of the Brazilian government, he promised in front of a lot of people in his speech that Brazilian population was going to become white, all white, 100% white, by the end of the last century. And he said how they were going to achieve that. One of the reasons was the fact that in Brazil, we could have racial couples, and because the black race was weaker, then it would be wiped out. The other reason, he said, was because black people, ever since the slavery ended were left to their own luck, so they were already dying from diseases and from poverty. Like, this was a representative of the Brazilian government saying something like that.
1: The backdrop of the measure, announced as official government policy, was a concerted effort to attract white Europeans and later Asian immigrants to the country, supposedly to improve the bloodline. The psychological impact of this policy is still playing out today.
3: If you have a black family and it's not politically involved in matters of activism, it's quite common in Brazil that the patriarch or the matriarch, they incentivate their sons to marry white people so you can whitening your heritage, and and then the family could become in a few years right. Obviously, that didn't happen. We are more than half of the population, and that didn't happen because of our efforts. Because ever since our ancestors were brought to Brazil, we are resisting. And we are producing some of the most beautiful things that this country has.
1: The failure of the government's drive to whitewash Brazilian culture can be found right across the country, in its dance, music, and of course, football. But something Thiago mentioned why I didn't expect to see this was within Brazil's healthcare system.
3: Everyone in Brazil, and everyone even who came to Brazil like a tourist has the right to be attended on a doctor, on our public health system. This is only possible since 1988, so it's very recent. And a big part of it was constructed by Black people, especially, mostly Black women, Black health specialists, because we were the ones that didn't have access to to health. Uh, system. So we built this public system. We built a lot of things, even with this fact that we are still not welcome here, but it's it's our country.
1: And we made
3: it this way and we have the possibility to make it even better.
1: A desire for change, Thiago believes, is one of the reasons his series, Projeto Carinho, was so well received.
3: I think the timing, uh, people were really tired of four years of Bolsonaro as a president, destroying our country completely. And Quirino was launched in that period. People were really struggling and really trying to obtain new tools to fight against all of this conservative extremism that were advancing and still is advancing here in Brazil and also in the world. It's very surprising for me that we didn't have a backlash. That was something that I was already prepared for because our big inspiration was 1619 from the New York Times and Nicole Hannah Jones, the creator of 1619, she's still facing a big backlash in the US. But here in Brazil, this also speaks about Brazil a lot because it's a country that don't like to discuss slavery. And we know why they don't like to discuss that, because if you don't discuss it, then you leave things the way they are.
1: But leaving things as they are is not an option for Thiago.
3: So it's hard, to, it's hard to go to sleep every day, knowing that so many people in Brazil are hungry, so many people in Brazil are being murdered. So many people in Brazil don't have the right to go to school. It's hard to do that. But at the same time, it's the only way to live, I believe. Uh, the only way to believe is to try to, to make a difference, to try to contribute in some way. The Brazil that black people always dreamed of ever since we were brought here is a Brazil for all. It's a Brazil that doesn't exclude anyone. In the beginning of the last century, we had this first black movement movement organized institutionally that was called the Black Front Frente Negra and they had a school that black children could have formal educations and those schools also accepted white children and also Japanese children because that school was in São Paulo that was receiving a lot of Japanese immigrants This is the Brazil that Black people wishes for, dreams for. And it was like that ever since the beginning. In our Brazil, the Brazil that we dream of, the Brazil that we are trying to build, no one is left out. No one is left
1: out. Well, I share that dream. Thank you so much. It
3: was a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. This was episode four of Cotton Capital. New episodes will be available every Monday. Next week, we'll be returning to Manchester and the world of black community organising. To read the translation of episode one of Progetto Cariño, please go to projettocariño.br. It's really worthwhile. To read and watch all of the journalism around this series... Please go to theguardian.com forward slash cotton dash capital.
2: This is The Guardian.